Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 181, and today's guest is Andrew Hogue, founder and CEO of TeamPay. Andrew is a serial entrepreneur with multiple companies under his belt. One of the companies that he started was called Urban Tag, which was tackling the trillion-dollar online-to-offline commerce market. The company was acquired in 2012. His latest company is TeamPay, which was born out of the realization around how software was helping companies collaborate and put controls in place across pretty much every business function. Think how GitHub helps with your source code repository or Marketo for your marketing cloud. So what controls access to your company's money? Well, it was this realization that led him down the path of starting TeamPay. The company's distributed spend management platform gives high-growth companies total control and real-time visibility over purchasing while empowering employees with smart, policy-driven access to company spend. TeamPay has raised $16 million in funding and is headquartered in New York City. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the end-user error and the shift towards a decentralized work environment, Andrew's journey into startups and a look at prior companies, the full background story and all the details about TeamPay, very unique advice on how to get a warm intro with your ideal investors, how to scale your initial team and culture, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Are you looking for new job opportunities? If the answer is yes, then you need to go to the VentureFizz job board where you'll find thousands of job opportunities across the tech industry. And these are opportunities across all different job functions, whether if it's software engineering, product management, marketing, sales, HR finance operations, and so much more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs and you'll see all the listings there. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Keith. Thanks a lot for having me. So uh, we're going to talk about TeamPay, which is a company in New York City that's uh, definitely doing a lot of interesting work in terms of how you're revolutionizing how teams are spending money. And there's obviously been a, you know, we're we're recording this in the the COVID-19 era. So there's been some drastic changes of how teams are spending money that we're going to talk about. But to kick things off, let's, let's talk about... Uh, a recent article that you wrote that talked about the end user error, and there's this you know shift towards a decentralized work environment. So, w- what does that mean? What's the end user error, and how does that affect you know how companies operate? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really interesting time right now, right? I've been in technology a very long time, and you know when I started my career, even you know as an engineer in, in the government, like generally things were purchased centrally. They were decisions made at the top and then cascaded down, right? And you had this concept of like the CIO in a business wielding a lot of power. And then we moved in this era of kind of bring your own devices. More consumers got their own cell phones, not one you carry in a suitcase. And everybody was bringing their own devices to work. And now we're almost in this era of like bring your own software to work, right? And so for us, what we've seen over the last, you know, kind of 10 to 20 years in terms of digital transformation is that companies are moving more towards empowering, you know, what they call their end users, right? So actually empowering the employees. And I think, you know, part of that is just the proliferation of technology across an organization. And I think the other part of that is actually people entering the workforce that have grown up in the internet era and their expectations have, you know, very high fidelity, right? So if you're used to using high quality apps or an Apple device at home, it doesn't make sense for you to be banging away on, you know, some archaic kind of, you know, 
pager system or BlackBerry or something like that, where you're used to a really high quality experience. And so for us, this kind of all gets captured in what we think of as this end user era. And it's this concept of the proliferation of technology across, you know, more and more people within an organization or within a business, right? It's digital natives growing up and entering the workforce and having the same expectations for their enterprise software that they have for their consumer software. And then even before COVID, we recognized that businesses were becoming more decentralized and had a lot more flexible working relationships with their employees. And gosh, you know, in the last three months, that is all just dramatically accelerated now where everybody's effectively remote or decentralized. And at some point we think that'll snap back, but it's not gonna snap back to 100% of what it was. And so it feels like this decentralization is here and more employees are being asked to do more on their own with their own tools. And that really is a way for businesses to think about how they employ or how they empower their employees to be empowered across kind of everything that they do. And it's almost like a marketing strategy now for companies. Like you see that some of the most successful companies like Slack and Dropbox, you know, it was an end user error that brought it into the enterprise that let them scale and ultimately sell a license and enterprise license across the organization. Absolutely. Right. And we think, you know, when you look across kind of the deployment of commercial technology within a business, right, uh, finance is one of the last departments to really benefit from consumer grade kind of enterprise software. Right. And so every company that starts is this little like pilot project in a department and then ends up crawling up the organization into the C-suite. Uh, causes more problems for finance. And so that's really what we recognized is that the employees and the end users have a lot of buying and purchasing power today's organization. And that's actually good for the company because it allows their teams to work more autonomously and have more agility. Uh, but when you'd want to control that from a finance perspective, it's very difficult. If you're controlling that from an IT perspective, you have tools like Okta um, and other tools that allow you to do that for IT and single sign-on and identity management. Um, but in terms of the finance and money management piece of it, that's the piece that we felt was under underserved. Got it. Well, let's rewind the clock. So let's talk about your background. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Like, were you always entrepreneurial? Like, give us kind of that, that sense of who you were at the foundation levels. Yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I grew up in a town called Fargo, which you probably have heard there's a movie oh, yeah, about of it. Um, so yeah, you know, grew up there. It was very Norman Rockwell life, um, easy existence. I was very fortunate that my dad actually had worked in computers. So I was exposed to technology at a very young age. Um, I loved hardware. I loved electronics. Wasn't really clear at that time that that was going to go anywhere. But if you follow Stranger Things, that was a little bit of my childhood in some sense, mm -hmm. um, you know, ranging from the ham radio to the experimental do-it-yourself computer kits. And so really kind of, you know, started out experimenting at that point. Never did I think this would become anything that it is today or, or make it a career. But after graduating college, I made my way out to Silicon Valley and was very fortunate to start working for the government at NASA. And so I was working in their supercomputer facility there as an engineer, um, ended up running an engineering team, and then jumped over to VeriSign, where I kind of cut my teeth on the corporate world. And this was through the dot-com, so got to see kind of that whole rise and fall of the dot-com and what that meant, um, and really got to experience a lot of different parts of the business, starting with engineering, but then moving into, you know, marketing and business development and sales and product management. Uh, when I was there. So that was really kind of the first era, first part of my career. Mm -hmm. So how'd you get into entrepreneurship? Like, was that something you always kind of were itching to do to start your own company someday? And like, kind of how'd you get started down that path? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, even when I was younger and when I was messing around with computers, I ran a bulletin board and I created software and sold software as a bulletin board. It was called Shareware at the time, right? So, you know, I grew up around technology and entrepreneurship and liked the idea of being able to build and create something. Um, maybe I just played with too many Legos as a kid. But, you know, after kind of my tour in the corporate world, I really had this itch to go do something on my own. And so, you know, started playing around with a couple different ideas, joined a couple teams as co-founder, CTO, even business. I kind of bounced between the two worlds, but, you know, really kind of took the leap fully in 2008 when I started a company. It was originally called Black Drum and later became Urban Tech, which was my own, where I was the founding CEO, raised a little bit of money for that, built a team and kind of navigated that through the first recession um, to a successful exit in 2012. Yeah. So yeah, this, you know, 2008, right before, you know, everything hit the fan. So, so what was the app? What did it actually do? Yeah. So the, we tried a bunch of different things and, you know, I guess now you call that a pivot. I think at the time we were just trying to figure out what worked, but you know, all of our kind of effort had been around the impact that social and the social graph has on our lives. So in 2011, we started a company called, or a project really it was within the company, but a project called Urban Tech. And what Urban Tag allowed you to do is bookmark and share your favorite places with your friends. So Foursquare at the time was all about where you are and Urban Tag was about where you were or where you wanted to go. So we kind of thought of it almost as like Pinterest, but for your favorite places. Um, And so, you know, we raised a small amount of money for that and then built that product up and we had really great engagement. We had users in over 120 countries. We had hundreds of thousands of places that have been saved in the app, a lot of curated content. Uh, and then we sold that in 2012. Got it. Okay. So what happened after that? Yeah. So after that, I was pretty burned out after four years of kind of grinding through a startup and was looking to get out of the barrier and try a little bit somewhere a little bit different. So I spent a few years in Europe. Um, when I was over there, I was mostly in Germany and I was working with small companies on product strategy and fundraising and marketing, and then working with larger companies on digital innovation. So spent a few years there and really it was during that time, you know, after a couple of years when I got the itch and I was like, all right, I, I want to go back and do something again. I feel like entrepreneurship is one of those things that once you, once you've experienced it, it's very hard to leave. And so started experimenting with a bunch of different ideas and really trying, you know, different markets and startups and pitches and co-founders and really just dating and trying everything that I could. And it was interesting because I did not set out to start what became team pay at the time. But what happened during that is I kept kind of experienced this problem. Right. And, you know, we talked about the end user era before, and really the problem that I saw and I experienced is that I had people working for me, doing projects for me that I was working with where I needed to give them ability to spend money or share access to our bank account or something like that and had a very difficult time doing it. And the engineer in me came from outside of the finance world and knew that I had great tools, right? If I want to give you access to a Google Doc, I can click a link and share access to a Google Doc for you. Um, If I want to give you access for $20 to go purchase something, it's kind of a pain. And so thinking about that problem and recognizing that there are other patterns in other industries um, really started messing around with what later became TeamPay. I wrote the first prototype, um, you know, by myself and had this like little kind of experiment that was going and did my first customer interview from my parents' bedroom um, over the holidays in late 2015. And it was pretty clear that there was an opportunity there. 
And so, you know, after a few years in Europe, I moved back to the U.S., actually in New York this time, moved to New York in 2016 and started the company. Why New York? Um, it was a little bit of, I wanted to try somewhere different than San Francisco. Um, New York felt interesting at the time. I had an opportunity to kind of go wherever I wanted. And, uh, you know, it was just a, it's a great place to build an enterprise software company. Right. And I think that's also what's underappreciated about New York. And especially today now, you're appreciating kind of people are appreciating more the diversity of talent across the country. But New York is really great, especially for enterprise, because you have access to most of the Fortune 500 in a subway ride at the time. Right. And so I felt like it was still like the second largest tech community outside of San Francisco and the Bay Area. Um, I still had a deep network of connections in Silicon Valley, which is most of the reason that you go there. Uh, but I was able to build in an environment that was probably less distracting. It was easier to get talent and had better access for financial services and enterprise, which is what we were focused on. Well, you know, obviously some of the best ideas come about from the actual pain that the founder had and wants to solve. And it's sometimes it's the most obvious ideas that are also the most effective where it's just surprising that this doesn't exist. Yeah. So, so what is out there? Like, what is the problem that you saw, you know, through, you know, accounts payable or reimbursement software, whatever the case may be that, and, and you know, how you're addressing this, this problem with a solution. Yeah. So, you know, we think about the problem very simply. And again, I'm drawing on the analogy that I have for other departments as an engineer, right? So, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with like the software GitHub, right? So GitHub is a tool that software developers use to keep track of coding and their software development process. It's pretty ironic that in today's world, I actually have better control over my source code right. than I do my money. Right. And so that's really the opportunity that we saw is it's kind of insane that you have these great ways, like you have tools like Box and Dropbox to collaborate with storage, right? You have tools like Okta or a single sign-on tool to control access to cloud services, right? You have tools like GitHub to control access to source code. You have tools like Marketo to control access to your marketing cloud, Salesforce for your customer data, right? What's the tool that controls access to your money? And how do you scale that across an organization? And so that's really the big blue ocean opportunity that we see. And when you start to think about these things like accounts payable or reimbursements, they're all processes that are built on the back end of somebody spending money. And so really we see the greenfield opportunity on the front end of that of how do you make sure that people are spending money responsibly, they know where to go, right? They're staying within policy, you have centralized reporting, you have real-time visibility, um, and all of that opportunity. And so that's really what TeamPay can facilitate for our customers. And it's been transformational, right? It saves them massive amounts of headcount in terms of the finance team supporting a large organization. Uh, the employees actually enjoy it because they get approved quickly and they feel empowered. The managers love it because they're not sitting in concur at the end of the month. Um, going through their expense reports or trying to figure out who bought what and why. Um, and the finance team loves it because everything is enforced centrally and they know that every single dollar that is spent by the organization is in compliance. Mm -hmm. And that's not the type of guarantee that you have today. And so that's really transformative for our customers. Got it. And then, you know, in today's era where um, you know, a lot of companies are in cost cutting mode, like how does it, how does it operate when a company is in that situation? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, right? So for the first three years of this business, right, we were selling 
spend management software that allowed companies to control and manage spend to companies who really didn't have to care about it. Um, you know, we've seen companies, we've got a bunch of public customers as companies, and we saw companies pre-IPO that came to us going through that process, and they literally had no controls, right? They would have someone sitting there with a 5 or $10 million corporate card that they were sharing with 400 of their closest friends within the company. And, you know, that type of discipline changes in an environment like today. And so the opportunity, right, this is the oldest story in the book, right? I'm old enough. When I started my career in software, you had a human who took all the source code from all the other engineers and would try to compile because it was software. They would try to compile the you know, product for people. And if somebody's software didn't work, they had to go back to that engineer. But that human was literally like manually pulling all this software together and compiling it. And they were called a build engineer or release engineer. That's been replaced by software. And frankly, software is better at it, right? So anytime you're aggregating data and you're trying to enforce certain controls and limits on it, software is really good for that. And finance is still working that way. They're manually merging data from all these sources. They're going back to you because you didn't code a transaction correctly. Um, they're trying to figure out what this purchase is. You have three things from Amazon. One is office supplies, one is food, and one is your web services bill. And how do you start to tell those apart? And so there's all kinds of issues with that. And really in today's environment, when you get to say, all right, we're going to save people's time, we're going to build a more efficient business, and we're going to have our finger on the pulse of spending in real time, that's an opportunity that we can provide. And that's really where Team Pay starts to shine. Got it. Now, I'm always fascinated when you like have an idea, you build a product, and you talked about this a little bit when you talked to your first you know, customer from your, your parents' home. How did you get traction early on? Like, like did you, you know, talk to a certain number of customers and how did you get some of the early adopters going just to get the business off the ground? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that, you know, other entrepreneurs ask me a lot. Honestly, it's just a lot of grinding. I, I find it's just a lot of, you know, conversations. You take introductions, you reach out to people cold. Um, I remember a couple of our early customers were just cold outreach on LinkedIn and one of them had only been in the job a couple months. And I just, I felt guilty. I was like, this person has no idea that we're like three people like sitting at the shared table in this workspace. Right. And like, they're effectively betting their career on this product, right? I mean, it was in some ways, it was terrifying, but also invigorating. Mm -hmm. But you just, you have to look through that, right? You have to look past that. And you have to have the confidence that you can deliver. And, you know, for me, a lot of it comes down to, and this was something that we learn in working with our customers that I think is really interesting about our sector. And this, this applies to other industries, but I'll give our example in particular, right? Most employees' interactions with finance is when they do something wrong. <laughs> that's, that's you didn't true. fill this out. Yeah. You didn't code this correctly. Yeah. You're late, right? That's a horrible, horrible employee finance interaction. Mm -hmm. And so... I realized and part of what, you know, I spent a lot of time actually trying to talk myself out of this business because I wasn't sure if I was excited about the market and the opportunity and that all changed. I mean, dramatically different like in insight now. But one of the key insights was that um, our customer is an underdog. And so I love a good underdog story, mm -hmm. right? Red Sox and Patriots notwithstanding, but like, <laughs> you know, the rest of us got to hope for someone to topple the Kings. Um, and so I love a good underdog story and realizing that our customers, 
really were at this, they were trying to do the right thing for the business, oftentimes juxtaposed against other people's wishes, right? Um, it's very funny. We just hired, um, we just hired someone from one of our customers or she applied and wanted to join, join what we're doing. And, you know, she talked about one of the reasons that they rolled out team pay there is that it's very difficult for a younger finance person to tell a senior executive that they did something wrong. Mm -hmm. And so having the software kind of take that load off of them um, was really transformative. And so tying back to your question, when you're talking to these early customers, I, what I enjoy about that is it's, I'm not trying to push a product on them. I'm trying to solve a problem. And so most of my conversations with those early customers is getting information out from them around what are the problems that they're worried about and looking kind of behind the scenes, right? Not what they say, but what they do, right? Because you know, it's the old kind of faster horse problem, right? You survey a bunch of people and they say they want faster horses and, you know, they don't understand how flight could change their world, right? And so you've got to look at what's the problem, what's the job to be done, pick your framework, right? But what's underneath what they're saying versus how they're actually doing it today and focusing on solving that and really looking at it from a first principles perspective. So I enjoy those early customer conversations. I think of them as research. I always walked away learning something and every single one afterwards, the subsequent conversation, I was able to use something from the previous and just improve, improve, improve. But it does take a lot of at-bats to kind of figure that out. I want to talk about the fundraising process, but before we get into that, like where, where's the business today? Like what's the size of team pay in terms of employees or any other data that you can share? Yeah. So we've got a couple hundred customers. We're around 40 employees right now. Um, so meaningful scales. I mentioned we have a lot of, you know, a lot of public companies, a lot of pre-IPO unicorns, um, larger companies, companies ranging in size from 50 to 3000 employees. And so, you know, it's starting to hit some, some meaningful scale for us. And it's been really exciting to see kind of just this uptake. And, you know, going back to the question about customers, I mean, I think there was a point when, you know, and this happened probably about a year and a half ago, where we kind of shifted from this like little experimental thing to like a fundamental core system. And so with a lot of our customers now, we're just one of their core business systems that's, that's part of their infrastructure um, I knew we had effectively made it when one of our early customers sent this their employee handbook and team pay was, you know, in the employee handbook that every single person who joins the company, if you're going to make a purchase, you use this thing called team pay. And we had another customer a couple of weeks ago, use it as a verb, right? And that's kind of like when you know you've made it in tech when somebody says, oh, just team pay it. Um, so it's been, it's been really interesting and exciting to see that. So the business is starting to hit some some really meaningful scale. And especially kind of in this COVID environment, we've seen, you know, some parts of the business, especially like mid-market, small enterprise, just continue to accelerate. And like, so like, what's your goal with this business? You're, you know, serial entrepreneur. So how do you define success for, for Team Bay? Yeah, I mean, my goal is probably the same that we were just talking about, which is I want to help as many companies as possible, right? I think bringing efficient processes and helping businesses be smarter about spending money is a very interesting mission. And I think that's something where we just want to be able to reach out and help as many companies as possible. It's really interesting that companies have very good visibility into their revenue at any point throughout the month or any given time, and they don't have very good visibility into their costs. And yet the cost and the spend is the only thing in a business you actually can control. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's trying to land a 747 in the rearview mirror with no instruments. And so I think, you know, that sort of opportunity for us is one that carries a lot of scale and 
kind of ask yourself how many businesses want to pay attention to cost most, right? If not all. And so it's a very big opportunity for us. And that's what gets me excited and, you know, keeps helping me get up every morning despite where I am. And if I'm working from home and making sure that we're making a dent in the universe. Well, back to the fundraising process. So from what I gathered, you've raised, uh, let's see, you did a $4 million round in 2018, but then you announced your series A at 12 million back in September of last year. So at what point did you decide that, hey, this is a business that is you know, a venture fundable business? And then how did you run that process? Because I, I saw that you, know, you, you run a very organized process. So what advice, you know, when did you decide that was the right time? What did it mean for your business? And then what advice would you give to entrepreneurs you know, fundraising? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it for me went back to kind of even the outset, right? I, I would not have taken a dollar of investors' money if I didn't believe this was a venture scale business. And, you know, part of that calculus was recognizing the position that we could occupy in the enterprise around access control for money. That was currently an open position. And my kind of hypothesis that that was a very, very valuable place to be. And so from day one, you know, kind of this path for me was very much on, on the venture scale. And I think that was something that I, you know, had experience with in my previous company. Some of the things we did were not and some were, right? And so understanding which ones are, which ones aren't, how you think about that, and if you actually have the conviction to drive that all the way through um, to some sort of you know, liquidity event in the future and what that looks like, what that business operating business looks like at scale. And this was one of those times when I actually could envision what this company would look like at scale. And I understood kind of the, the sequence of steps to get there. But there was a lot of validation early on that this was a big enough opportunity as I started to talk to investors. And I never would have taken a dollar of investors' money if I didn't believe that this could become a venture scale business. Now, how about actually running the process and deciding you know, who to raise from and you know, obviously getting term sheets and getting interest? I mean, that's obviously a huge, huge process. So how, how do you keep it organized? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, every round, it's a little bit different, right? And there's different math at the round. There's different investors. There's different dynamics at the round. Like at the Series A, usually one investor wants to own a large chunk of it. Um, that generally doesn't happen at seed. And we actually had raised a pre-seed that kind of got combined into our seed round. So we had effectively two fundraises in the pre-seed and seed stage. Um, so the dynamics are all very different. I mean, I think for me, one of the things that I've learned is, you know, there's a strong emphasis on building relationships. Um, but at the same time, for me running, you know, as you say, running a process is really important, right? So I would go through kind of this sequence of steps where I would identify all the potential investors and I would just identify. So I just say, who are the good investors? Who are the right partners? Who's conflicted out? Who do I think could really be helpful? Who's done deals like this in the past? Who hasn't? done deals like this in the past and may have some FOMO. So I do this really rigorous kind of identification piece. And then separate from identifying the investors, I would figure out what's the best, best path to those investors, right? And what's the right intro to those investors and how do I get there? And so that was actually, you know, that was kind of a separate step. So sometimes someone who knew an investor well wasn't necessarily the best intro. I found for me, the best intros were existing portfolio CEOs and existing founders. Um, I think in general, investors trust their founders instinct on this. And if the founder is making the money, they're more likely to kind of look at other things that they send over. And so I'd always try to network my way to the right path um, to that investor and get the intro. 
And then once we had the introduction, start working through kind of getting to know them, doing some, I would actually like a lot of times I'll like hop on the phone for 30 minutes and just be like, hey, is this a fit or not a fit, right? Versus just walking them through the deck and like trying to get a feel for the human. At the end of the day, it's money, but there's a human attached to it. And I really have been very fortunate to have good humans involved in the business. And that's something that I think I optimized for early on was just getting the right people involved. And in times like this, it's really proven to be useful, right? Having people that have your back, have seen you build the company, have a lot of trust in your decision making, are good sparring partners, will be direct and call you out if you're doing something wrong. And really having that transparency and that humanity with the rest of my investor base has been super important. So that also is one of those filtering criteria as we kind of go through that. That's great advice. I don't think I've ever had someone answer the question that way of uh, the portfolio company as the entree point into an, an, a warm intro. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. And it's good just to spend your time to do your upfront due diligence on who's likely going to you know, be a, a good use of your time, who's going to invest in your... Like, I think some entrepreneurs are just looking for people that will meet with them, yeah. whereas they're not always aligned with the type, the stage or the particular category of software or technology you're building. So. Yep. Yeah. You've got to find the fit has to work on both sides. Now, do you think it was useful as, as a founder to have that technical background? For me, it was right. I think it helps. It also helped me de-risk a little bit of the fundraising process um, because my background was technical. And so I wasn't looking for a VP of engineering or something like that. Right. I think, you know, when I think about founding teams, I think it's really important to look at, you know, the five or six key things that you need to do and how you cover those across the founding team. And so you need someone who understands kind of the finance side of it, which is actually where I was weakest. So I had people early on that were helping with that. Um, someone who understands the sales, the business development aspect, entrepreneurial selling, kind of doing those initial customer interviews. Someone who understands the product right? And the product is actually translating the technology to the solution. So how do you solve the problem, right? And I think that person sits in between kind of the customer voice and the technologist, and then someone who can actually deliver on the technology, right? And so you need, you need a team, a mosaic of people that can kind of fill that Venn diagram and make sure all the areas are covered. Um, and for me, having the background of having successfully shipped hundreds of products before, having built products, had a little bit of engineering. I knew I could hire good engineers, people who knew me, knew that I had good talent, you know, capabilities. Um, I think that definitely was helpful. If you're someone starting out with an idea, you probably want to think about how you're filling that mosaic and where those parts are coming from, um, because it's really critical when you start to think about, you know, building the team and scaling the company. Well, you just, you, you mentioned earlier, you're about 40 employees. So how did you go about thinking through, you know, building that initial team, starting to scale it to 40 employees, as well as factoring in, you know, the, the, the culture of the company? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really interesting because during our, during our seed days, so as myself, I had a VP of engineering and another founding engineer. And then I had a couple of people in operations because of the financial services, FinTech part of what we were doing. But I was, I was the business guy. Um, early on. And so we were effectively, you know, four to five people, right? A couple of people were part-time, um, four to five people for almost a year. And when we raised our seed round, uh, we knew that we were going to grow and we had this, you know, huge ambition of doubling the team to from four to 10 or four to 12 or something like this, right? And uh, we actually sat down as a group and walked through what we believed our values to be. 
So the whole thought experiment there was how do we, we had a way of working together and I'd seen this happen in organizations of all sizes, right? If you're four or five, let's say you're five people and you had another person, that person is 16% of the culture. And so you want to make sure that there's really good fit there and there's good alignment. And so we actually sat down and wrote it down. Those values that we wrote down in 2017, we're still using today. Mm-hmm. They've been modified and tweaked and adjusted. Um, but, you know, I think every company it comes up with some concept of this, right? At Google, it kind of, they call it Googliness or something like that. And they have their own quirk on it, right? I don't know what our, I don't have any kind of adjective for it. But at the end of the day, we did write down like, here's the values, here's what we're looking for. And specifically, here to how, here's how we validate that someone meets these values, right? So for us, um, every company talks about teamwork, right? Teamwork and collaboration is really important. How do you assess teamwork? And for us, this came down to empathy. If you don't have empathy, it's very hard to work across the aisle when you have differing viewpoints. And so bringing empathy to the conversation and how do we evaluate and assess empathy is something that we interview for. And so that's really helped us scale that culture. And I think we were very fortunate, even in this work from home environment, to have a culture that was formed, you know, very um, proactively and very deterministically. Like we were very specific about the type of culture and the type of people that we felt would be successful here. And that's not to say they're bad people, right? Different companies have different styles. When you're dealing with people's money, move fast and break things doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a little more proactive. You have to be a little more studious. You have to be a little more thoughtful um, because we're dealing with, you know, public companies' money. And if they have to restate earnings, that's a mistake, right? So you have to be really careful with those kinds of things. And so that's inherent in our culture. But there's other companies, you know, maybe a consumer brand where you can do those kinds of things and run experiments and roll them back and say, I'm sorry, and fix it and all those kinds of things. You know, in our business, it's probably not the best way to engender trust with with large companies. So, you know, there's really understanding your lens on it, looking at it really from the basics of like, how do I evaluate? But that was something that we explicitly started working on very early in the, in the trajectory of the company as we scaled. Got it. What, what do you recommend out there for any like good uh, podcasts or book recommendations? And I, I even ask now because uh, I know I'm watching more, I'm streaming more TV than I, I, I ever have. Uh, any like binge worthy shows that you'd recommend? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I just, I go through them so fast. Um, obviously I'm a huge fan of billions. I think also billions started when I was living in New York. Mm-hmm. So that was a world that I was not exposed to, right? This whole hedge fund masters of the universe kind of environment and New York is changing, but it gave me a connection to that. And one of the startup ideas I had been working on was specifically targeted at hedge funds. So I got a little bit of intersection with that world. Um, I remember walking into a meeting in New York for the prior kind of startup idea and the assistant is like, oh, I'm sorry, the managing director just left because the last one to the jet has to pay for it. Like that's actually what they do. (laughs) So the last one on the jet has to pay for it. And I was just like, and I watched Billions and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a part of New York that I'd never been experienced to. So yeah, super excited about that. I think they do a really good job of making you know, the protagonist, antagonist at times and both and vice versa. Um, in terms of the book reading side of it, um, I don't know. I've been going back to some of the classics lately. Maybe that's just the nature of being 
maybe that's the nature of being in quarantine or, you know, spending too much time inside my head. Um, but I recently ran, you know, recently read um, Andy Grove's High Output Management, which is just one of the seminal kind of operational business books. Um, I've been perusing Sun Tzu's Art of War lately. Um, just kind of, you know, going back to some of the classics and, and I love to go back and kind of touch on things here and again and, you know, kind of like refresh my memory and dip into things. I, you know, pull out Horowitz's book, The Hard, hard Thing About Hard Things every once in a while. And especially in March and April was kind of going back to that as we we're going through kind of all of the COVID stuff and how do you lead a team through conflict and struggle. Um, so, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a good call on the uh, the classics because like you have a different perspective probably each time you kind of revisit it. Absolutely. And- you put it in the context of the current environment and it definitely has a different reflectivity. Well, in uh, normal circumstances, what do you like to do outside of work? Normal circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I like to spend a lot of time outdoors. Um, so that's pretty important to me. In the winter, I like to, I'm a big skier, so spend a lot of time in Europe skiing. Uh, and then in the summer, a little bit of, you know, I like to go upstate in New York, get outside, do some hiking, um, picked up kite surfing a couple of years ago. So started doing that a little bit more, uh, you know, whatever I can when I'm not running the company. So anything outdoors is, is bonus time for me. Some sailing on the, on the Hudson once in a while, things like that. Got it. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional background journey. Of course, all the great things you guys are up to at TeamPay and uh, all the great advice. Yeah, thanks so much, Keith. Huge fan of what you're doing at VentureFizz. It's been a great service to the community. So thank you so much for having me on. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.